The first thing that you want to do is, as I said before, be sure that you have something that really has significant value and try to quantify it. So what would it be worth if I guaranteed that for the rest of your life you'd stay happily married? Um, What would it be worth if I taught you um, a set of skills on an ongoing basis that allowed you to outperform your peers in your work? It's very easy to look at the value you're creating for your members and take a very small fraction of what you're creating as a fair compensation. You're listening to Robbie Kellum Baxter, our very special guest on today's episode of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're not already familiar with Robbie, she is the best-selling author of The Membership Economy, a world-renowned keynote speaker, and an advisor to some of the world's leading subscription-based companies. Robbie founded her company, Peninsula Strategies, in 2001 and has consulted for a few companies you may have heard of, Netflix, SurveyMonkey, and eBay, to name a few. Robbie joins us on the podcast today to discuss a topic that is crucial to the success of all membership and subscription businesses, pricing. We start with a 30,000-foot view of pricing for membership sites and then drill down into some of the most pressing concerns for all entrepreneurs. We look at the essential areas surrounding the topic of pricing, such as how to set the price of your membership, assigning a dollar value to content and information products, when to use a freemium model versus a free trial, how to test your prices, the psychology of pricing, and so much more. If you've ever felt unsure of the pricing strategy for your membership site, I highly recommend you listen to this episode. Robbie shares enlightening insights, tips, and stories from her nearly 20-year career working with membership and subscription businesses. If you've ever asked yourself, should I have both annual or monthly pricing options, or does an open or closed membership model work best, then this episode is for you. As always, I'm your host, Eric Turnison, and this is episode 119 of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Hi, Robbie. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Eric. I'm glad to be here. I really... I'm excited to talk to you because, well, you're you're Robbie Kellum Baxter. You know, you wrote the book mm-hmm. Membership Economy. Um, so you've played a very major part in the space that I've been working in for about ten years now. I've really enjoyed the membership economy. Uh, I really appreciate your writing style. It seems like I'm having a conversation with you, which is nice. I think one of the one of the things that really stuck out to me when I was reading it, but you said that you know two of your passions are business and psychology, and um, I wondered what the backstory was there. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I guess I would say that um, I've always been interested in business from the time I was pretty little. I was always interested and gravitated toward what things cost and how things worked, and how they could work better and how companies could talk about things better and make people want to join. That was just, that was just my, like some kids like bugs or soccer. I like, I used to do carnivals and babysitting clubs and catering companies. And just, I loved how business worked. And then the, the psychology part is, you know, part of it is that I just am interested in how people think and how they make decisions and what makes people do the things they do and um, how to motivate people. And then my sister, with whom I'm really close, is a psychologist. Oh, okay. And I've spent lots of time talking to her both about her practice and what she believes and what she's learned 
and also psychology as a business and why people come to psychologists, um, the different ways that psychologists can treat you, and um, what understanding how how you make decisions and how you feel about the decisions you make. Um, that's just always been really, really interesting to me. And, and those are the two places where I think I would continue to study and be interested in them, even if they had nothing to do with my livelihood. Yeah. I mean, there's so much depth there. And I think that um, I also, as a child, was interested in business and psychology. I, I, I don't remember this specifically, but I know my parents told me I did a, a lemonade stand when I was young. And um, I had this very specific strategy for getting people to buy for me, which is I put the stand in the middle of the street. So, <laughs> right. So there must be a corollary in business, right, to that type of strategy. Right. Right. That's um, you know, that's that's putting a you know like a billboard in the middle of the street as a metaphor, making that into an actual literal. Um, another thing I did was I would often walk down to the bank and change coins into other coins. Like oh. pennies into nickels, nickels into dimes, and then package them up and do it again. Have you ever seen the Saturday Night Live sketch um, of the change bank? No. Okay, so definitely um, look for it on YouTube. The whole thing is about we make change. And then they have guests come in and say, you know, I had 50 cents. They were both quarters. I needed dimes. I went to the change <laughs> bank. And then they'd show the teller saying, you know, Robbie came into the bank. She needed dimes. I had dimes. I helped her out. Feels great. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awesome. <clears throat> and actually, you know, now that I think about it, that's a good lead in to what I think we're going to be talking a lot about, which is pricing. Um, so, <laughs> so pricing is, it's a single word, but there's so many questions. Why don't we start with a 30,000 foot view? You know, and specifically, our audience is interested in membership sites. You know a lot about membership sites. And so what are the initial things that people should be thinking about in terms of approaching their pricing for these types of businesses as opposed to non-recurring revenue businesses? Yeah. So the first thing to think about is, number one, are you providing enough value that it's worth more than nothing? Because that's the biggest hurdle, that it's worth more than free. Because um, there's so much out there that's available for free. So you really have to start by saying, what do I have that's worth paying for? The second thing to think about is, is my offering optimized for a subscription? So for example, if I'm going to teach you um, how to tie a tie, probably wouldn't justify a subscription. No matter how much you want to tie a tie, once you learn it, there's not much more that you can learn and you're probably not going to want to talk about it with other people and you're not going to have ongoing questions. Um, you're not going to get expert status. And yet I see all the time that people have one piece of information, one piece of content, something very narrow, and they want to do a subscription and then they're surprised when people cancel. And, and in that case, the cancellation is completely justified because they've taken all the value out of your subscription that there is to take. So step one is to pick a foundation of a business type and an offering that will actually su support people paying you month to month or period to period. And what type of businesses 
are those? Anything where the subscriber or the member has a, what I would call a forever challenge, um, something that's going to go on for an extended period of time and where the organization or the individual can provide a forever promise um, to justify a long-term relationship. So the, it's almost easier to tell you what doesn't work with subscription. And that's really anything where sales and marketing is irrelevant. So that would be things like, I have a patent for a drug and you need that drug to survive and there's no other choice. Um, I'm the last gas for a hundred miles and you can't go backwards. Uh, anything where the customer has alternatives and where they have a long-term need probably can work with subscription. Okay. Now, assuming that we have a type of business that will f- support having recurring revenue, how do you even start to think about the value of that in an actual dollar amount? So there's there's a, f- a few different ways that I think of, you know, the and I, I usually encourage people to triangulate, um, although there are some bold people who, who, who don't. So let, let me explain what I mean. The first thing that you want to do is, as I said before, be sure that you have something that really has significant value and try to quantify it. Um, so what would it be worth if I guaranteed that for the rest of your life, you'd stay happily married? Um, what would it be worth if I taught you um, a set of skills on an ongoing basis that allowed you to outperform your peers in your work? Um, if you were a salesperson, what would it be worth if I allowed you to sell, if I taught you things that allowed you to sell 10% more? It's very easy to look at the value you're creating for your members and take a very small fraction of what you're creating as a fair compensation. In most cases, there's not a perfect number. So I encourage people to think about a range. And in some cases, your business might be highly elastic, which means uh, that the more you lower your price, the more customers you get. And there are other times, I think in a lot of membership models, once you get above one cent, it's highly inelastic. In other words, it's a binary decision. Do I value this experience or this content or do I not? And if it's $10 a month or $14 a month or $22 a month, I don't really care because it's that valuable. So so the first thing is what's the value you've created and, and what's the range? The second thing is, is there any competition um, or anything that's going to peg me to a price? So, for example, if I come out with a new kind of soft drink, a carbonated soft drink, there are lots of other carbonated soft drinks. I might say this quenches your thirst in an amazing way, but if I come out with a, you know, it's $27 for a can, people are going to say, but we're used to paying whatever, between 75 cents and let's say $5. So sometimes you have a competitive landscape, which makes it really hard for you to break out. And that's not to say that you can't. This is where I talked about risk and, and confidence. If you say, well, my carbonated drink actually helps you lose weight and it tastes delicious, um, yeah, maybe I'd pay a hundred bucks for that drink, you know, and I drink one every day. Um, so it's it's useful to know those different things. The value that you're creating is the first. The second is what your competition or your your environment, your your ecosystem is doing. And the third thing is what's your cost? 
So if I make that drink that makes it possible for people to lose weight without trying, and it costs me $200 per can to make it, then $100, even though that's really expensive to the market, that's not good business for me. And, and what's interesting to note is that sometimes in the life is not fair category, sometimes something that costs me a lot to create isn't valued by the market at that same rate. So for example, uh, breaking news, if you want to cover, if you said tomorrow, you want to start a website where you cover breaking news in your area, um, it would cost you a lot to get um, journalists, to get cameras, to be where the news is, to get hot tips, all of that. But most people are not willing to pay anything for breaking news because for many news organizations, it's a loss leader. They don't care if they don't make money on the breaking news because they make money in a different way. So you have to ask yourself, what is my cost? Because even if if um, you come up with the right price for the market, if it's not a good price for you, it's not worth doing. Yeah. And you know, it makes me think of... Um my particular situation, you know, running a software company, it's interesting to me to look at, you know, talking about costs involved in things. There's a lot of costs that goes into building, maintaining, improving software. Yeah. And then in, in, in terms of pricing, you look at people who, who are specifically just selling content, right? They're sitting in front of a camera, they're sharing their thoughts to a particular audience or community that's interested in that. But it, it seems like information has an interesting perception in terms of price versus uh, tangible things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and part of the reason is that, uh, well, one is there's so much content that's available and so much of it is available for free. And the reason that so much content is free is, number one, uh, it's less expensive to create and distribute content than it's ever been before. So I can sit here at my desk and I can create video, I can create text, I can create audio files, I can upload them, I can post them in, in ways I can advertise them and people can find them all over the world immediately. So everybody can be a content creator. Um, on the other side, many organizations provide content as a as a loss leader, as a marketing tool. So they're willing to give away content because it attracts people who will pay for other things, or they're willing to give away content because creating the content gives them tremendous pleasure or does something else for them. So when you're competing against people who have different goals than you do, um, sometimes it's really hard to win your race. I see. Now, you know, I would say the majority of people who use our software are running content-based businesses. Mm -hmm. um, they're selling access to uh, some form of content, whether it's courses, training material for health and fitness, stock trading, etc. Mm -hmm. So is there a way that you think about the value and the range of price for something like that? Am I coming up with that by looking and seeing again, your second item, is there competition? How much are they charging? How, how would you approach that specifically for a content business where really your your cost, number three, what's my cost is pretty much, you know, it, there may be an upfront capital expenditure for equipment and stuff, but in terms of production, that cost is pretty minimal. The cost is my time and it's also my opportunity cost. So if I'm a finance person and I have a really clever way for people to uh, make more, you know, to invest their money. 
I probably have some other choices. I could probably go and work privately as a financial advisor and take a percentage of my client's profits, right? Or charge them hundreds of dollars per hour for my advice or go work at an investment firm. So I might say, I don't want to do this because nobody, uh, you know, nobody in the, you know, nobody's willing to join and pay me a very small amount, but I can go do this privately for 10 times as much as I'm even asking here. So it is, there is an opportunity cost, which I think, you know, accrues to the, to the entrepreneur, right? If I do this, I can't do something else with this same expertise. Um, so, yeah, so, so you gave a couple of examples. You talked about, you know, finance versus health and fitness, just as two examples. So both of those are very crowded spaces where lots of people think they're experts um, and lots of people are experts. And consumers have a lot of choice for free content as well, both in terms of loss leaders, right? So, you know, Schwab and uh, Fidelity and Goldman Sachs, they all give away tons of information for free. So what you would need to have as a financial advisor or a financial coach is something that is different, that they can't get elsewhere, and probably something that is proven. So what I would, if I were working with an entrepreneur in the financial services space, I would say, what is it that you have that is different um, and better than what people can get for free. And what is the expected return on their investment? And then I would say, and how easy is it for you to prove that before they join? And how easy is it, is it for you to prove it after they join? So you're always looking for credibility and relevance, right? What is the unique thing you offer and how credible are you? You know, if, if I offer financial advice and I can demonstrate that 95% of the people who pay me uh, end up getting a return of double their money, 95%, right? I could charge whatever I want. Um, on the other hand, if I say that um, I have no evidence, but I'm really charismatic, I'm probably going to have a hard, harder time um, justifying uh, an investment. But all of that is to say that finance is a, an easier place to get members because you're actually talking about something that has a financial measurable payoff in contrast to, let's say I was giving you advice on relationships. Same thing with, with, with health. If I can demonstrate that people, that it's worked for people better than the other free options that they have. Again, if I can say that I can do a one minute workout, which I know has been really popular uh, recently. And that one minute workout is equivalent to an hour of running on the treadmill and I have evidence that it's true, and I'm the only person who knows how to do it, people might pay me a lot for that information. If I'm supporting them emotionally, people might be willing to pay me a lot because it's going beyond just access to the routines or the workouts to actually be something that I can't get elsewhere, which is you know ongoing relationships, answers to my questions, somebody watching my form, and so on. But for the fitness people, it depends what they're doing. If they're doing uh, live workouts, um, where they watch me through a camera, I'm going to compare it to the cost of my live trainer, my human being that that actually can you know adjust my arm. Um, if they're offering a support network, I'm going to con- compare it to my other support networks and so on. Right. I just had a recent experience where I was looking at uh, DSLR cameras. And the first place I went was YouTube. And whatever I type in, there's always umpteen number of people doing videos on that subject. And 
I ended up going with somebody who I personally resonated with and I watched a number of their videos. And at some point they would mention that they off, they were selling guides. So I ended up buying that guide for a particular camera that I ended up going with. So in that situation, I was engaged in their free content for a period of time, building a relationship with that person. And then once the trust was built, I ended up spending money with them. This is going into, okay, the freemium approach. Now, what points at which is it a good idea to do freemium and what times is it not a good idea to do freemium? So, so freemium is, is hamburger forever and, and free trial is a bite of delicious filet mignon because you don't believe me when I tell you it's the best thing you ever ate. So th- that's the first thing that I think we, you know, for people to think about is do people need a taste to see how good it is or do they need to change their behavior, which freemium does really well, and giving them a chance to see if this is going to be part of their new normal. So freemium works really well. I think in there's, there's sort of three scenarios that I think freemium works well in. The first is if you're trying to change a behavior. So if people are used to reading the news in print and you want to get them to use it digitally and you think, I'm not going to ever do that, um, and I don't read enough online on any one publication to justify paying, well, if, if New York Times or the Wall Street Journal has a freemium model, you hit a paywall after you know some number. You can, you can read 10 articles a month, let's say, for free, and then you hit a paywall. And after a while of hitting the paywall, you think, well... I really actually am looking at more than 10 articles a month. Maybe I should just go ahead and subscribe. Right. Um, so that's to change behavior. A second reason is if there is a viral component, which, which basically means that even though, you know, I may never pay you for my freemium, which again is hamburger free forever, the less good quality, but forever. Um, maybe that's enough. That's all I need. But just in the course of doing business, I'm reaching out to other people and, letting them know about this product. So this is like Hotmail, the um, the old email uh, provider, where at the bottom of the email, it said, if you want a free account, click here. Their freemium customers were their marketing channel. The third time, so if, you, if your customers are your marketing channel, like SurveyMonkey does that, uh, LinkedIn is like that, lots you know, lots of sites where you, where you bring in other people. And the third one is when you, as the freemium member, are actually part of the value for the paying members. So that works in a lot of um, communities. Um, I always joke that it's kind of like ladies' night at bars. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right? You know, if you're not paying, you're probably the product. And, right. <laughs> uh, you know, that can work really like LinkedIn does that really beautifully. Most people don't pay anything to LinkedIn. And that's okay because for those of us who are in sales or are recruiters or are looking for jobs, the fact that everybody in our professional community is accessible there is really valuable. So those are the only three reasons um, to change someone's behavior on an ongoing way. Uh, if, if your customers are actually acting as your marketing channels or if your customers are part of the you know, a, a content created by your customers, your members is part of the value. Those are the only times to use freemium. And the only time to use free trial is if your prospective members are saying either, I don't understand what you're offering, or I don't believe it's as good as you say. So in either of those cases, a little tiny taste will answer their questions. 
where's the line on that? Because it's it seems like there there's a subjectivity there. Um, and maybe a confidence you were saying earlier, the confidence in the product. And maybe if you had a little bit more confidence, you would say, no, they don't need a taste. It's good enough. Because maybe maybe the psychology of it is, you know, a free trial may work against you in certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so for a free trial, you know, you wouldn't want to give somebody a free trial where you had high variable costs. So for example, Blue Apron gave very, very generous free trials or very discounted trials to meal kits. And, you know, at one point they were making about a dollar per customer after all their expenses were, if a customer stayed, the average customer was staying for less than six months and the lifetime customer value was less than a dollar because their initial, even though it was like, you know, whatever it is, like 45 bucks a week or 90 bucks a week or some ridiculous thing, um, they were actually, and then, and then they got to a point where they were actually not making any money um, on their subscribers. So, you know, you don't want to, you know, and, and my thought when I heard about these very generous, they were trying to change behavior. Right. So they were saying, well, it doesn't work to just get one free meal. You have to get a few so you understand how, you know, what it's like to come home and have your meal you know, ready to, ready to prep, you know, all prepped up for you. Um, but that was a very, very risky strategy. And they didn't know how long people would say, let's say that they knew that people who got a month's worth of free meals or a week worth of free meals would stay for a year, their lifetime customer value would be much higher and it would justify that generous offer. Or if they knew that people who fit a very specific profile could justify getting that kind of a generous free trial, but they didn't have evidence that the free trial would convert into valuable customers, valuable members. So I think that was that was a mistake. Um, bring up this question of you know that it's sometimes when it's too easy to get something for free, you never recognize the value. Hmm. Yeah, the, the thought that brings to mind then you know because we we can make mistakes in pricing, and then we get some experience and we realize oh actually this is what we're hearing and this would be a better decision. So. How do we a recognize if our pricing or our offer isn't working, and then if we do recognize that, how do we go about changing it? So, if if your business isn't growing as fast as you'd like, and you have a hypothesis that it might be that you're pricing too high, something to you know, it's worth understanding what is turning your customers away, and if they say, "I can get the same thing for less over there." Or you can experiment and say, would you buy it at a lower price? And they say yes, then maybe it is pricing. But in a lot of cases, um, like I have this one client and they're not growing as fast as they think they should. And we know that they're a, they're a, they have a streaming content and they know that a lot of people take advantage of the free trial and never join because they get as much as they need without paying. They We know that they have some issues with streaming technology and that Sometimes it doesn't work, so it's frustrating. And they know that people that are subscribing are often subscribing for a very specific piece of content. And once they've watched that piece of content, they don't need it anymore or they don't want it anymore. Right. So if those are the reasons that people are canceling or not signing up, none of those justifies lowering the price. So you really need to pinpoint why people are leaving or why they're not signing up and be sure that you have evidence that it's about your price. 
Um, you can experiment in a very finite, limited way, um, sometimes through just showing prospects your offer in print or, you know, having an ad that runs for a very short time and saying, would you be interested in this at this price? And then giving them something to thank them for responding if your pricing is too high. If your pricing is too low, which I think a lot of people worry about more, uh, people generally worry about more. And you also want to understand elasticity. Do we, if we lower the price, do more people sign up or do the same people sign up for less money? If your pricing is too low, um, again, I want to know, why do you think your pricing is too low? And if they say, well, we're growing so fast, we'd like to raise the prices and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, you might want to ask yourself the question of, is your original price something that people have pegged to the value? Like most, um, most broad-based content is now between like 10 and $15 a month to be where, where things are. So you might say, well, we're priced at $5 a month and we're blowing the doors off this. We should just go to $10 where everybody else is. Um, that might be worth, that might be worth trying. Um, the, the risk is um, if you raise prices, you need to have a commensurate message about why you're doing it. Um, as, as you pointed out, having a relationship is really important. And when you raise prices, you cause your customer, your member to take off their blinders and reconsider the purchase. Right. Now you mentioned trying it. it. Are there ways to try out new pricing without it being the uh, announcement to all customers, hey, we're raising the price? For example, you you have your checkout page that people go to. It says a certain price, but maybe you do some offers behind the scenes and, and test it out on a, on a certain segments and see how it goes. So there's a few things. So if you were work, like, you know, I have a colleague who's, who, you know, all he does is pricing and he would say, um, yeah, you want to do a very, very, very quick sample and be prepared to make your changes right away because word gets out really fast, you know, in, a, in an efficient market that, you know, you're, you're, you're experimenting with prices, with pricing. Um, so it, it, what I would say is, number one, you want to know really specifically what your hypothesis is and test against that specific hypothesis. So you don't want to say, let's just raise prices and see what happens. Um, but rather, let's say that you said, we think people wouldn't even notice if we raise prices, you know, new people. Right. So you might just experiment with raising prices and you say, but the one thing we're worried about is the people who are already here. We don't want to raise prices for them. So then you would just raise prices for new people coming in and say that anybody that stays with you is grandfathered in on the old price. That's a pretty low risk strategy. Um, and then if it doesn't work, you can always drop your price back to where it was. Um, because the thing that people are usually afraid of when they when they raise prices is um, either that that they're going to realize, well, we priced it too high, too high, and now we're losing people. Or most most people worry that that existing subscribers will be angry at the price increase. So that's what happened with Netflix, right? Netflix raised their prices. Um, they were not completely transparent about it. They said, um, "Great news! Instead of getting your three DVDs out at a time for nine for uh, and streaming for thirteen ninety nine, now you get." You can either have three DVDs out at a time for $9.99, or you can get our streaming content for $7.99. And anyone can figure out that $9.99 and $7.99 is more than $13.99. Um, so people were really frustrated, and they weren't grandfathering in people. Everybody was going to get the price increase. Um, so those were two things that they did, I think, wrong. Yeah, I think they actually just raised their pricing again. 
And their email was kind of comical. Uh, this is what it said. The cost of your standard plan has changed from $12.99 or changed to $12.99. This change takes effect this date. You can view your updated membership details here. Keep watching what you want, when you want, and know that we're working to improve Netflix experience for everyone. Thanks for being a loyal member, period. So, you know, very, like I've seen pricing emails from companies that are like multiple paragraphs, you know, but this is kind of like the opposite, but there's a confidence to it. It's like, Hey, you know, we're bringing the value and here's our decision. We're letting you know. Um, so that's kind of how it reads to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I, I was just going to say it's a, it's a bold choice, but it's also transparent. We, you know, they don't, they're not saying, they're not positioning it in a way that feels inauthentic. It's, it's pretty clear that they're saying we're raising our prices. And if you don't like it, you can leave. And that shows confidence in their, you know, kind of in the quality, in the value they're providing um, relative to competition. And I think they're particularly able to do that now because they have so much unique content. It's hard. There, there, there's a momentum there. Yeah. One of our customers um, had a specific question about pricing that I want to pass along to you. And it was that, have you seen a correlation between the price of membership and retention rates? For example, a membership with a lower price point may attract more signups, but that there may be more churn in a month or two. Uh, conversely, a higher price membership may attract fewer monthly signups, but the quality of the member, it does attract may stick longer. Is there any correlation here? I have not seen much of a correlation between price and retention rates. Um, What I have seen is that the bigger issue is between people thinking that something is valuable and not valuable. And they're, they're less sensitive about the actual specific price, unless the pricing is a significant outlier um, you know, kind of well above, let's say the the five to fifteen dollars that we see most of the time for content. If if somebody promises that you know this is a very high price, but it's going to help you get a job, and uh, the subscriber says this isn't helping me get a job, they're likely to cancel. Um, if they find that they're not using the content, they're likely to cancel. Um, so I, I haven't really seen kind of a, a, a clear correlation. Um, between pricing and cancellation. I see a clear correlation between perception of value and canceling, and I see a clear correlation between usage and canceling. So that's probably a better thing to track is, you know, are people using it on a regular basis? If they are, they won't cancel. Yeah. So I I think a a theme that I just want to call out that, that seems to be recurring throughout this discussion about pricing is, number one, make sure that you actually have a pricing issue. And before you start thinking about pricing, because uh, I think it could be a knee-jerk reaction to be like, oh, it's price is too low, prices are too high. But what I hear you saying is look at why people are doing what they're doing before you decide your course of action. Um, and it may be that what you need to do is actually um, develop your relationship with the customer, make sure the value proposition is clear um, and that you're delivering value over time. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. And and I would add on the positive side, if you're providing a lot of value, you'll start to hear things from your customers, your, your members, like, I don't really remember how much I'm paying. It doesn't really matter because I'm getting so much value in return. So for example, um, like Adobe Creative Cloud, I think a lot of the designers that work with it don't even know how much it costs because it's like a utility for them. 
they, they use it so much and it's such a part of their business as usual that they're pretty price insensitive. And if it were raised by 5% or 10% or probably even 20%, I don't know that they'd look up and consider canceling. On the other hand, hobbyists and, you know, weekend moonlighters, uh, they find the pricing very high and, you know, they're looking at it in a different way and they're more sensitive to the pricing. Right. But of course, uh, of course, I'm sure Adobe knew of those two different markets and they made the decision, look, who do we, who do we want to work with? Who are we more concerned about using our product? And we're willing to sacrifice some of our moonlighters to really uh, support the professional market. Um, and I personally, for, you know, as a software company owner, I think the the recurring pricing is a great mechanism because it puts the um, incentive on the company side in the right place. It puts the incentive on retention and quality of product as opposed to attracting new business. Yeah, yeah. And, and engagement is a great leading indicator for retention. If people aren't using, if people aren't using your content or using your software um, on a regular basis in, in the best way, and they're probably going to cancel. And you can also start to see who's getting the most value in terms of usage. Um, in this case of software, it's, you know, they're using the, you know, breadth, depth, like I always say, recency, frequency, and depth. So the last time they logged in, how often do they log in or use your use your product? And then how deep do they go? Do they use all your features? Do they look at all your content? They spend lots of time looking at different things because that's going to show you who's getting the most value or that could be an indicator of who's getting the most value. Got it. Now, um, I have some questions around the psychology of pricing and the image that's coming to mind is that scene in Clockwork Orange where he's got his eyes propped open and he's forced to watch this video. So... (laughs) Our subject is in that position, right? And what what I want to hear is how are they going to react to what we flash on the screen? And the first one is the most basic, numbers. When we flash a number, what is the, the difference between $5, $10, $20, $50 to somebody looking at those numbers? Well, it depends who your audience is and it depends what they've anchored it to. And this is something that, you know, I, I have to keep being reminded of because, it, you know, I'm still often a sample set of one. And so I'll think, well, that doesn't seem like very much to me. Or, yeah. That seems ridiculous. Who in the world would pay that much money for basketball tickets? You know, right. there's a whole world that thinks that it's a great deal to see a basketball game for $100. I don't know. There, there probably are studies that say, you know, $5, this is how America feels about $5. But, you know, if you told me... I could I could lose a $20 bill today and not notice it and not have it change my life in one bit, one bit, right? But if you told me that that Diet Coke is $20, right. I would never buy it. Even though I wouldn't even miss the $20, it feels like too much because I have that product pegged at a certain price. I, I value associated with that. And people don't like to be taken advantage of. So $5 in a vacuum, $50 in a vacuum, looking at it on the screen, I, I don't know, but the minute you tack it on to something that people are familiar with, they try to anchor that. Note. Right. That's when you get the reaction. Yeah. But but of course there's the base reaction, right? Like you may not care about 20. Somebody may not care about a hundred, 
right. but somebody may care a lot about one. So there's that base psychological reaction, which is, it comes with, okay, who is your audience? Like you were saying, like, where is their mind at in terms of the level of amount of money? Um, and of course you may be dealing with split audiences, like, like with Adobe suite, you know, you maybe you have the moonlighters, but then you also have the professionals. The professionals are going to be like, well, whatever, you know, right. 50 bucks a month for this is, but the moonlighters are like, wow, like $10 a month. Uh, I don't know. I make a living from my, you know, from my subscription business. I'm not going to care much at all what the platform costs. And if I'm not making any money from it, I'm, it's going to suddenly just seem. Well, actually, I, I have a lot of experience with that one. And you'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> there are people who make plenty of money on their subscription business and still complain about $20 a month. It's it's pretty interesting. But then, of course, that just comes down to individual psychology. You know, you, you can't really make decisions in the aggregate based on that. The next one is annual versus monthly. Yeah. So annual is usually more profitable uh, if people take it. If people will take the off, if you can get them to take it. Um, so it raises the bar for signups, especially if they don't trust you or they don't envision themselves using it for the long term. So, you know, back to our Netflix example, if you're somebody who watches their original content um, and it's the primary way that you entertain yourself, you know, you might say, well, I can't imagine a scenario where I'm going to cancel in a year. And if I can save 20 or 30% by committing up front, uh, especially if they make me pay it out on a, you know, in more in a contract way. So I commit up front, but I pay on a monthly basis. That might be a really good deal for me because I'm, I'm committed already. I'm mentally committed. But the other side is that that's a much higher bar. So if you said, we're, you know, a lot of companies have looked at only offering an annual subscription. Um, in many cases, that's because they lose money on people who only use the product or services for a few months. Um, and so they'll they'll say, well, we don't care if we lose volume because they're not profitable anyway. For, for organizations who are in between, where you say, well, we're we're seeing our customers for staying for more than a year, um, and we'd like to encourage that behavior, so we're going to give them that option. Um, generally, they find that their their annual people are, are more profitable. Um, so that that would be how I would how I would think about it. The other place where I've seen annual work really well is where you have a product that has a season um, and people, you know, that they're going to need it every season. So, um, but, but you, you also know that during the off season, so let's say a soccer league, like I worked with this European um, soccer league and they have rabid fans, but at the end of the season, they would cancel their membership think to themselves, I'll join up again, whatever, when it starts again in whatever January, but then they would forget and they would join in March and they'd lose those two months of revenue or they would miss the whole season. So part of what we did is figure out how can we price annual so that if, if, you, know, if you price annual at the cost of eight months and maybe throw in some things for the off season, like, you know, old, old games that they can watch or whatever, then they might say, well, if I'm going to watch every month anyway, I might as well just subscribe. And that way, you know, I'm, I'm less likely to miss anything. Um, and for the, for the league, they weren't losing their, losing their, their biggest fans. That makes a lot of sense. Um, number of tiers. So I, I think probably the most common one I see when I go to checkout pages is three offers, mm -hmm. your low, medium, high. Is there value in having multiple offers? Is there, is, do you look weird if you only have one price? Or is there value in that? 
So when, when somebody's starting out, I say to start with one. Because then you have room to add the other two once you've learned something. And back to our early conversation about not knowing, you know, what's going to work until you try it. Um, you know, when you when you try a subscription and you start getting feedback that people are pushing on the edge of what you're offering, they either want more content, more access to you as the expert, um, uh, more uh, ways to save or store or use or test themselves. You say, oh, I'm going to offer this and I'm going to offer it as a higher tier to the people that are kind of pushing on the roof. Or if you see that people are lighter users or they come out of a different use case, so like, you know, amateurs versus professionals, for example, or people just getting started to people that are experienced, then you might say, oh, I'm going to offer something at a little bit of a lower entry price that will get people into the habit. Um, so three is, I think, the most that somebody can absorb on a website. So as a, as a, as a potential perspective uh, member, if I see more than three things, I might be overwhelmed and I might not be able to process it and leave as a result. But if you can segment well enough that you can present the offers to different groups, um, so for example, if you have offerings for uh, large enterprises and solopreneurs, you might have three offerings for the solopreneurs and three offerings for the large enterprises because they're not going to get confused and look at the wrong thing. Right. That makes sense. Open versus closed membership. An open membership allows registrations all year round. Closed membership shuts its doors for certain intervals. So, so they basically, for, they do more of a, a marketing push once a year or something like that. Have you seen examples of these two models working, not working? What I think of is when you have a cohort of learners and you want them to go through the experience together because the value of the cohort is a key component of your offering then having it as a, as a closed membership, I think is really important. If you have access, and, and I actually think that those are often the most valuable of, of memberships because, you know, the, the content is somewhat valuable, but having other people who are trying to achieve the same goal or solve the same problem is, um, is priceless. Yeah. And you really capitalize on that community aspect, which you do an amazing job of covering in, in the membership economy. Yeah. It's really, I mean, you know, the trigger to get somebody to join is often the content, but the hook that makes people stay is often the community. Right. So uh, it kind of goes off the the, bear, the bearings of pricing, but what are the, the top community uh, strategies that people can do within a membership community. And, you know, let's, let's narrow it down to, you know, we're dealing with, you know, member mouse customers. These people are typically running 5,000 to let's say 20,000 member membership sites um, dealing with information products, video training, stuff like that. So these types of businesses, what approaches from the community perspective can they implement to help their retention? Yeah. You know, starting a community is like, you know, growing a tree from an acorn. Um, you know, in the early months and years, it's it takes a lot of effort by the entrepreneur to get mm -hmm. the community going and to make sure that it grows in the right direction. Um, lots of pruning, lots of, um, you know, amendments to the soil and all of that. So, you know, when you, when you start a community, if you just turn on, you know, like a lot of companies think, you know, we can just open up the community feature and it will just happen. But what I've seen happen is, you know, number one, people don't, don't join or engage. So you often right. have to populate it behind the scenes and, 
you know, encourage people to ask their questions or they call you and ask a question and you say, can you please post that for me? And I'll answer it that way. Um, so there's, there's some of that kind of back, back room machinations. Um, second thing is that you need to set the tone and early on, you need to be really rigorous in protecting the tone. So, you know, what do you do if somebody trolls? What do you do if it's rude? Even if they, they share their name, if they're just harsh or unkind, um, what do you do if somebody starts to uh, market themselves in the community as, you know, as a, you know, like as if this is a sales channel for them? Uh, what do you do if somebody purports to be an expert and you as the owner of the community can see that they don't have that expertise? So in other words, they're giving advice that is not credible. What do you do with that? So there's a lot of things that make building the community hard in the early days um, and requires pretty heavy moderation. Um, but once it's flourishing, um, it almost, you know, it can often operate almost on its own, just like a tree to water it anymore. I think having, uh, trusted moderators that help you to kind of police or manage the community and also make sure that it's populated with interesting questions and, you know, scenarios and use cases is really, really important on an ongoing basis. It's also important. We haven't really talked about sort of the difference between your beginners and your experts, now, as you're, you know, if you're running a site with with content um, or a software company, frankly, you need to always be improving your offering so that, you know, the most recent person who comes in actually has the biggest, you know, largest uh, amount of value of anybody who's joined because it's all, uh, you know, uh, been added and and you want to keep growing by looking at where your most advanced people are pushing to make sure that they stay. You have to keep them interested because they're going to be the most valuable people in the community. So you have to give them something that makes them stay. And it could be in the form of new content or new features. It can also be in the form of giving them recognition and status within the community for their contributions and achievements. So, you know, in the case of a software organization, people who've been using the software for a while and have kind of pushed on the limits, they often want to share their learnings um, and their experiences. In the world of, of, of content, you know, there's going to be, if you have a fitness community, right, there are some people who've lost the weight or gained the muscle mass who are going to want to tell everybody else how they did it. And giving those, the most credible of those people status and recognition within the community is going to keep them engaged long after they've gotten kind of the bulk of their value in terms of achieving their goals. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I had a recent uh, experience with a customer of ours who were doing something like that and it wasn't anything complex. They have a Facebook group as part of their community and they have something called Y5s, which is if somebody has a win or something in their business, they're encouraged to post it on the group. And then the, uh, the people who run this community, Andrew and Pete, um, they basically record themselves doing a, a, a Y5, which is just a video of them giving them a high five and they post that. So super simple, but so powerful in terms of helping the community. Yeah. And it's, it's great for, um, for recognition and um, appreciation. And what's, what's really interesting to note is that in that case, the Y5, they're not getting paid anything. There's no financial value to the recognition and that's not necessary in most cases. Um, it's really about being seen for your contributions and feeling like there are people who support you 
and admire or appreciate you. Exactly. So as we're coming to a close here, I, I have a, a final question for you, which is um, you wrote Membership Economy, I think, what, close to four or five years ago? I did. And you're currently working on a new book uh, and it's called Forever Customer, correct? Forever Transaction. Forever Transaction. Okay. But what would you say is is maybe the the major shift in perception and as you're writing this book versus when you were writing the membership economy and how you're approaching it? When I, when I wrote the membership economy, I was convincing people that this trend existed, was real, and was relevant for most business people. Whether you're in a small organization or a large one, when it's been around a long time, or something that's, uh, that's entrepreneurial, for-profit, not-for-profit, if you care about building long-term relationships with the people you serve, think about it using a member mindset and you'll build better business models. That's what I was trying to say. And now when I tell somebody what I do or I tell them about my book, they don't argue with me anymore. They don't say, that's not a thing, that's not relevant to me. They say, our company is doing that, thinking about that, trying to fix a mess that we made by trying to do that. But but they're in there. They're, they understand it. And they're thinking about how do we do it? And they there are more specific questions, more sophisticated questions about how to do it. So um, large organizations that are trying to transform from transactional um, to relational. Uh, there are, um, you know, Entrepreneurs who go beyond kind of what we've been talking about, which is media and software, who are now thinking about, you know, subscription boxes. Um, there are physical products that are being um, sold on subscription, like, um, I don't know, Peloton bicycles or... Uh, clothing for men, like, you know, here's your clothing of the month. Yeah, exactly. Stitch Fix, Trunk Club, La Tote, which is like Netflix for clothing, where they send you five items and you can keep them as long as you want. And when you return them, they send you five more items. You know, there's so many models now that use physical product. Um, so it's different. And also it's a global phenomenon now. So when I, when I wrote the book, I was very US centric, but I mean, I'm sure you do too. Like I get calls all the time from companies in, you know, in Asia, in Latin America, in Europe, in Africa, who are trying to apply these principles in their own markets. So you know, lots has changed. Um, people have gotten more sophisticated, but the problems I think are harder now. Yeah. And then the scale, it's one thing to deal with five people. It's another to deal with thousands of people in different countries and different currencies and different um, cultures. And it's, it's crazy how complex everything is. It's a challenge or it's an elegant, it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle and it's an opportunity. I mean, the, the idea that you could, you know, launch your membership business here on a Tuesday and Tuesday at midnight, you know, your third customer might be calling from, you know, or reaching out from Nepal or, I know, right? or you know, uh, Zimbabwe or something. It's, it's crazy. It's really, you know, it's, it's, you know, membership is, is truly global. And I love the, the, the idea that the title of the book um, encompasses your your two passions. So <laughs> transaction is business and forever is psychological, relational, right? Yeah, exactly. So when is this expected to be released? 
Well, it's due um, to the publisher in July. I love how you put it that way. <laughs> it's due. You know, this is what they set for me. Hopefully I make it. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. You have no idea the anxiety that that date produces in me. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it's it's due July 1st and uh, it's uh, scheduled for release February of 2020. Awesome. I wish you the very much best of luck with that and um, minimal amount of stress as possible in getting to the the objective. And I very much appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Is there anything else that I missed out on? Any other ways that uh, our audience can learn about you? Yeah. I mean, I think the best thing is uh, read the book or, um, you know, LinkedIn uh, has tons and tons of articles that I've written um, and courses and uh, and all kinds of good stuff as well. So uh, I'm easy to find and uh, also happy to connect up with people. And if you have specific questions that come up, Later, you know, please let me know, and I'm glad to uh, to try to do my best to answer them for for Member Mouse. Thank you. Oh, and read the book, but also I'm actually listening to it. The audiobook's pretty good, uh, so you know, the, the audiobook's also on Audible. So again, thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'd like to extend my sincere thanks and gratitude to Robbie for her willingness to share and engage so deeply on such an important topic. And many thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and now have a new perspective on pricing for membership and subscription businesses. To learn more about Robbie, you can visit her LinkedIn page where she has dozens of articles and trainings. You can find her at Robbie Callum Baxter, or you can visit her website at peninsulastrategies.com. We also have links to all of these resources and more at subscriptionentrepreneur.com slash 119. There you'll also find the show notes for this episode, a complete transcript, and some additional resources from Robbie. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. We'll see you next time. Thank you.